I don't know how many of you thought that your life has changed so dramatically. I mean, think about it. You're, you're at a, a Bible study on Sunday night in the book of Leviticus. For so many of you, before you were Christians, if somebody would have told you that, he would have said, never. Just to show you how, what God can do and how he can change you. Now, I remember when I was in college, I signed up for a class on radium physics. It was required. And I looked at the curriculum and I thought, I'm not going to like this class. Though I like science, I thought, I just knew I wouldn't like radium physics. Too much math, too technical, thought it would be a bore. As I got into it, it became my favorite class during that year. I just loved it. I understood it. Uh, things made more sense to me as I studied it, and I just really enjoyed it. Those things that I thought I wouldn't enjoy became very enjoyable to me. Now, I've also found that true about the Bible. I was just certain that it's Matthew. That's going to be it. You know, I first read that as a young Christian, and I'd looked through some of the Old Testament things. I had, couldn't even pronounce the words, let alone read them and understand them and enjoy them. The longer I've studied things like the Old Testament, and even this book of Leviticus, it's become precious on how it reveals the plan of God. And I hope that's also been true for you as you've been studying with us through the Old Testament. We've gone through the Bible now completely, every verse of it, from Genesis to Revelation. Some of it we've taught many, many times. And this is our second time through. And what we've been doing is we alternate books. One style is to go from Genesis all the way through to Malachi and then start a Matthew. What we've done is Genesis, Matthew, Exodus, Mark, Leviticus, and then Luke. We've just done alternate books, and uh, it kind of breaks it up a little bit, and we still get the grass. So tonight we're in chapter 19 of Leviticus, and we're learning some things about how God is dealing with a nation. It's a new nation. They're fledgling in a covenant relationship with God. They'd been slaves for so long, for about 400 years in the land of Egypt. And now God has separated them miraculously. They're out in the desert, camped at Mount Sinai. God gives to them a law, a way to relate to man, a way to have a covenant relationship with God. And Leviticus tells us how Israel can be rightly related to God in fellowship as they are surrounded by pagan nations. And it comes through a covenant of the law. However, there was a problem. The first part of Leviticus deals mainly with that problem. The problem is that as a sinful person, personally and nationally, I'm having a covenant with the holy God. Sinful man and holy God cannot just hang out unless there is something to take care of the sin issue. And so God instituted a series of sacrifices. Animals were slaughtered, their blood was drained, their blood was sprinkled in the most holy portions of the tabernacle. And the blood vicariously atoned. That is, in substitution form, God substituted the death of an animal for the person so that that person, banking on the fact that God would see the blood of the animal atoning for his sin, could enter into right relationship with God. Then, as Leviticus goes on, God gets more specific. We not only worship God through sacrifice, we worship God through separation. We're separated to God. God takes us apart, cleanses us by the blood of his Son in the New Testament. But then, God cleans us up. He sanctifies us. He washes us. And how many areas of your life have you seen God mess around with? Almost every area. God isn't content unless he touches every single area of your life. He wants all of you. And just when you think you've got it all together and you're sort of holding on to this little bastion of rebellion, this fun little sin that's all your own, God comes knocking and goes, <clears throat> Excuse me, I want to deal with that issue. Oh, no, please, God, you've had it all. Just leave this one little thing for me, this one room. Uh-uh. I want all of you. 
And so God, in a loving way, has been very nosy with the children of Israel. Dealing in everything from their diet to their sexuality. God lays out the plan to have a relationship with not only God, but with other people and how to be satisfied in their relationships in life. You know, God has the best intentions in store for you. God wants your life to be absolutely full. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Why is it that some of us think that God wants to ruin our lives, cramp our style? You want true living. It's a life surrendered to God. You want to be very frustrated? Try being a fence walker, a fence sitter. Like the old political party, the mugwumps. There are mugs on one side of the fence, there are wumps on the other. They can't decide which area to walk in. The most frustrating area as a believer is to say, I'm going to be devoted to God, but I want to also be devoted to the things of the world. A little bit here and a little bit there. And so God wants every area surrendered. In chapter 18, and we dealt with it and finished it off last week, but God was dealing with the area of marriage, family, sexuality, relationships in the family, spoke a lot against incense, uh, incense, incest. <laughs> this is my fourth service. Because the family is that basic unit of society. When the family breaks down, the society will follow. Because a society is simply a large reflection of the family unit. And you get a lot of messed up families together, you've got a messed up society. So God built walls, parameters, protections around the family. And he said, you shall not do this, you shall not do that. Now you might say, well, why? See, God's trying to cramp my style. No, God says, a man shall not lie with a man. A woman shall not lie with a woman. Anybody shall not lie with a beast. You shall not lie with your mother or your father or your uncle. And, and God was trying to preserve not only uh, the family unit, but the whole society. And then he went outside of just the immediate bloodline, and God said, basically, you shall not have adultery whatsoever with anyone else. You shall not have sexual relations with anyone who is not your husband or your wife. All of this was done to protect society and to fulfill the person. Now, incest, there's an obvious problem with that. Whenever relatives marry, there's a higher percentage of defective children. So there has to be a sufficient break in the genetic link. Otherwise, you increase uh, the percentage of problems and defects. But not only that, but there is an emotional damage that occurs in any kind of illicit sexuality. Now that's the part that Hollywood keeps from you. It portrays so much of the glitz, glamour of having that affair or that fling. But it does irreparable damage. You injure yourself. And God knew that. Proverbs chapter 6 says, A man who commits adultery destroys himself. You can destroy yourself physically through sexually transmitted diseases. You can destroy yourself emotionally. And I've heard people say, well, this has been a tough marriage. I'm just going to bag it and I'm going to marry that gal. She's so cute. She's so wonderful. She loves me for who I am. And things will be different. No, they won't. You'll carry the same problems and patterns from that relationship into the next. And there will come a time where you've separated and now you're walking a straight line, but pretty soon you'll start looking around again. And those same ways of dealing things are carried from one relationship to another. You injure yourself. You injure your mate, your family. It's not only the problem with illicit sex, it's the problem of trust. The months of deception, lies, 
things that you've kept from your husband or wife while you've gone out and had some affair. When that trust has been eroded, it takes sometimes a lifetime to regain it back. It's very difficult. You do injury to others as well outside of that circle. The Bible says if one member of the body of Christ suffers, the whole body suffers. Other Christians are hurt. You can look at it this way. Every obedient Christian adds strength to the body of Christ. Every disobedient Christian weakens the body of Christ. It hurts everyone. But more than anything else, it hurts God. That's why David in Psalm 51 said, Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this iniquity. Joseph, when he was being tempted by Potiphar's wife, and she grabbed him by whatever the lapels of his coat and said, Lie with me, you big hunk. You know, she just came on strong. He refused and he said, How can I sin and do this great wickedness against whom? God. First and foremost, he knew that he would hinder that relationship with God. So he refused to do it. So following on the wings of chapter 18 and the relationship issue, God said the land would be defiled because of it. And it says the Canaan vomited out the inhabitants of the land because of some of those sins. Now in chapter 19, we have a list of several commandments. In fact, all of the Ten Commandments can be found in chapter 19, but not in the same order they were given back in Exodus chapter 20. It's just sort of scattered throughout the chapter because the commandments touch every area of our life. Verse 1, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now that's sort of the blanket covering that's the premise for everything else that he's about to say in this chapter. I'm the Lord your God. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord, am holy. Now, admit it, holiness is a puzzling term. What does that mean exactly? And everybody has sort of their own definition, apart from the scripture many times, of what holiness means. And some people have even seen it as a very narrow, legalistic kind of a person. That if you're holy, you should frown instead of smile. You should wear dark clothes instead of colorful clothes. Uh, you should just be a drag to be around. No joy. Oh, I'm holy. Now, there was a time in the church when the holier you were, the more you did frown. You weren't allowed to laugh much. It was frowned upon at a certain period in church history. And wearing dark clothes was seen as, wow, that person's holy. Holiness has very little to do with the outward, very much to do with the inward. Now, at the same time, when God changes the heart, that's what he's concerned with, everything else follows. It changes the way you do things. It changes outward behavior. But God always begins from the inside out, never the outside in. If God has your heart, everything else follows. Man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. Holiness is based, notice, upon a covenant. I am the Lord your God. Whatever, whatever you do now is based upon the covenant that I have with you, children of Israel. The ground of your behavior is on that premise. You're mine. I'm your God. There's a covenant relationship. That's why the Egyptians, the Canaanites, were never forced to enter into the laws of God because they weren't in the covenant of God. But I am the Lord your God. You shall be holy. Now, the root word, let's see, in the Hebrew, it's kodesh. Chodesh, I think it's pronounced. Is that about right? Chodesh. In the New Testament, it's hagias. Those two words basically mean the same thing. It means set apart for a specific use. Have you ever had um, a pitcher or some kind of potter pan that you put the same kind of fluid in over. Let's say when I was a kid we had an orange juice jar. It was plastic and my mom filled it with juice and she always put orange juice in it and after a while the thing even when it was washed smelled like orange juice. 
So much so that it was never used for anything else. It was set apart specifically for the use of pouring orange juice into our glasses at breakfast. It was a holy pitcher. That's what the word means, set apart for a specific use. What use? God's use. You're to be different. You're to be set apart. Of all the people in Egypt and Canaan, you're mine. Now, you can see that negatively or positively. You can say, oh, man, be holy. Or you can say, what a privilege. I belong to God. He's going to use my life. What an opportunity to let these hands be as his hands, these feet to do his bidding, this mouth to be his mouthpiece. Nothing could be more awesome than being used by God. Be holy, for I, the Lord, am holy. Now, that's why he commands it. You're to be holy. Why? Because I'm that way. Like father, like son is the principle here. I'm your heavenly dad. This is how I am. If you follow me, you're to take upon the same characteristics. It's the same principle as we read in the book of Ephesians. Be imitators of God as dear children. Imitate God. He's your father. Now, it's very common for a child to imitate his parents. He'll say things, do things, take on certain characteristics. You've noticed it, parents, the good and the bad. You'll see a child act a certain way, and you'll say, where did he get that? And your wife will say, he got it from you, honey. <laughs> That's your response in those situations. It is? That child becomes a reflection oftentimes of the parent. Imitate God. I've been told, and I do a number of imitations, not really well, but I just have always done them. They say that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. And if you ever attempt to imitate a person, you have to observe them. You observe their mannerisms, their voice inflections. And the more time you spend with that person, the more apt you are to imitate that person. Now, the more time you spend with God, the more apt you are to imitate God. The more time you spend in fellowship with Jesus Christ, the more like him you can become. You see that he does things a certain way. He responds a certain way. You're more apt to do it. You're in close fellowship with him. So the more time you spend with him, the more you're able to imitate him. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Then he said to his disciples, you are the light of the world. He's the source of light. You're like the moon to the sun, reflecting the glory of the sun to the earth. Now, when I was a little kid, on summer days when my brother and I were bored, we'd take a little mirror, we'd go out to the corner, and we'd hide behind a bush, and we'd get the sun just right as cars were coming down Pine Ridge Road. We'd just set that mirror just so. Now, what were we doing? Well, we were being brats, <laughs> obnoxious brats. But what we were doing is taking the sun, the glory of the sun, and bringing it down to the level of men. Not in the appropriate manner, albeit, but we were doing that. Now, you and I are called to reflect God to this world, to be holy, to reflect his character by imitating him to the world around us because there is a covenant relationship that we have with God. Now, how does that occur? And I want to explain this because you might be listening by radio or you might be here tonight as an unbeliever. The only way to do that is you come to God in repentance, which means a complete change of mind and of will and of action based upon your mind and your will. You come to God and you turn from sin, you turn to Him. He takes your life. He changes you. He works in you. He takes you just the way you are, lock, stock, and barrel, defects and all, washes you clean with the blood of his son, and then over, over a process of time makes you more and more like him. He starts dealing with areas of your life, and he cleans you up. There are some people who say, well, I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to start going to church. I, I think I'm just going to get into this God thing. In effect, it's half of a turn. They're saying, I'm turning to God, but they have no intention of turning from sin. That's not true repentance. 
Repentance is a total turn from a self-governed life, a life of the flesh, to God. Then there are others who say, you know, I'm going to turn over a new leaf. New Year's resolution. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. Self-help. That's a half a turn. You've got to turn all the way from to God. Then you come to God. You're set apart by God. And God works in your life and makes you holy. Now, as we go on in this chapter, we see that holiness has a lot to do with love. You can see it from the positive aspect, and it's the way we treat people. So let's go on. Verse 3, every one of you shall revere his mother and his father. Now, here's the blanket rule, the premise. This is holiness. Now, all the commands follow. I'm the Lord your God. Be holy as I am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father and keep my Sabbaths. I'm the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols. Nor make for yourselves molden gods. I am the Lord, your God. Why did God so often say, don't make images? Where did they come from? A place where there were so many images, you couldn't walk down the street in Egypt without seeing some image of some god. They were going into a land that had as many idols. So God said, because of who I am, You will not make an image, because that would reduce God to the same level as all of the other gods and goddesses of Egypt and of Canaan, and God was the only God. He would not be reduced to that level. Now, why do people make images? People make images because they have lost the consciousness of God. They need to be reminded of it. A person who walks in constant fellowship with God on a daily basis doesn't need a reminder of a statue or a picture as he walks in the house. Oh, that's right. I forgot. God. Right. Now, as I see this, my mind is directed back to worship God. A person who lives in fellowship with the living God doesn't need any reminder. He's conscious that God is with him. He lives in that awareness. His life is governed by that principle. Don't make idols. But people also make images because, let's face it, we have a problem with invisibility. We're called to have a personal relationship with a person we can't even see. And so, since we're a little bit edgy about that kind of a relationship, we want something that we can relate to, touch, feel, as our God. That's the way the Canaanites worship their God. But images always obscure the glory of God. Think about it. There's no image you could ever create, even if you were Michelangelo, Raphael, Donatello. I'm not speaking Ninja Turtles here, but great artists. But all of these talents put together. There's no image of God you could create that would capture the glory of God. The characteristic of God is that he is unlimited. He is self-contained. He needs no other. He's unique. To make an image robs him of that glory. It obscures the glory of God. Aaron, what did he make? When Moses was up receiving the Ten Commandments, he was gone. Remember what he made? A golden calf. Or, better yet to get the image in our mind, a bowl fashioned out of gold. Why? Because in Egypt, one of the strongest representations of the gods was the bull, Apis the bull. It represented strength in the midst of conflict and uncertainty. And so Aaron, what he was doing was fashioning something that would remind the people of the strength of God. And he held up this calf and said, These are the gods, O Israel, that led you out of Egypt. But in making God in the representation of a bull, he only represented a small sliver of the character of God. Looking at that bull would never remind you of the kindness, love, compassion, and grace, but just strength. It obscured so much of the glory of God. And images mislead people. It's a psychological fact that whenever you look at something and pray to that something, the image that is created in your mind is how you start relating to the person you're praying to, or the God, whoever God you're praying to, you start relating to that God that way, because the image, whether he has a happy face or a mean face, and it can mislead people. So God just said, because I am the only true God, you can never contain my glory, 
Don't make an image. Don't make an idol. Otherwise, you'll be like the people that are around you. And if you offer a sacrifice, a peace offering to the Lord, verse 5, you shall offer it of your own free will. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it, and on the next day. And if any remains until the third day, it shall be burned in the fire. And if it is eaten at all on the third day, it is abomination. It shall not be accepted. Therefore, everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity, because he has profaned the hallowed offering of the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from his people. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather every grape of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. Now we're discovering something about holiness as we cover this chapter. Holiness and love are very much related to each other, are they not? This is holy. Be holy. No idols. Keep my Sabbath. Make sure that you care for the poor people in your land. By when you reap it and you pick grapes and the harvest, you leave some of it. You don't take all of it for yourself. Now, this happened in the book of Ruth. Remember the story? Boaz had a bunch of fields. Ruth was poor with her mom, Naomi, mother-in-law. Boaz saw Ruth out in the fields gleaning. And he told his reapers, let this woman go through the fields and glean whatever she wants. In fact, leave handfuls of purpose on the ground. So she'll come by and pick them up. Take care of her. She was a relative of Boaz. This was the welfare program, and I like it. It's a great program. They could have gone in and just picked every single grape, or they could have gone through it once, and whenever you reap a field... You're going to miss some of it. I used to work in Israel on a kibbutz, and I picked avocados and bananas and planted kiwi. And whenever we would harvest these things, we'd always leave some. Now, you could go back and you could pick it, or you could leave it for people to just walk through a field. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of just walking through a field, and whenever you're hungry, you know, just to walk over and grab a banana or grab a piece of fruit and eat it and, and go on to the next place never being hungry. It's a great welfare program. Now, Jesus and his disciples were doing this. Remember in the Gospel of Matthew, it says, it was the Sabbath day, and Jesus and his disciples were in the cornfields, the grain fields. And the disciples were walking along, they'd pick some grain, they'd rub the chaff off, they'd throw it in their mouth, and it became sort of like a gummy substance, they'd eat it. Then it says, the Pharisees questioned them. So he said, why are your disciples doing that which is not lawful to do on the Sabbath day? My first question is, where did these Pharisees come from? What are they doing on the Sabbath in the grain fields? You ever thought about that? They're supposed to be resting too. Well, they've obviously been following Jesus around waiting for him to do something like this. He said, oh, it's the Sabbath day. You can't do that. Now, what were they referring to? This law was perfectly acceptable except on the Sabbath because according to the Jews' minute description of work, this is not the biblical description. This is from the writings later on. It was unlawful to pick because you are harvesting. You couldn't rub the grain between your hand because that is threshing. And they had all of these stipulations attached to plucking of grain, calling it work. You're laboring on the Sabbath day. And Jesus said, haven't you ever read what David did on the Sabbath, how he went into, in the days of Abiathar the priest, the house of God, and he ate the showbread, which is not lawful for him nor anyone else to eat except the priest? And don't you read how the priests on the Sabbath day profane the Sabbath, but it's okay? And Jesus said, I want you to know that one greater than the temple is here. And the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day. Now this really angered them because he put himself above their temple, their tabernacle. Above their law, above their Sabbath. He could do that because he was God, but he was doing something perfectly lawful. He was gleaning in the fields. Keep in mind also that this was not just a dole-out program. They just didn't stand in line and get a free box of grapes. It was free for the taking. They had to use their legs 
and go out in that field and use their hands and do a little bit of the work. It was left for them, but they had to do something. And I think that's important. Whenever I see a sign, will work for food, I expect that that person will do it. I try to carry with me some cards from the church, phone number, address, and I'll stop and I'll say, now, you want a job? We'll give you a job today and we'll pay you the same day for every day that you work. You come over to the church, over at Calvary Chapel, and I'll put you to work. Now, I've done that for a number of years, and I've gotten one, maybe at the most, I think really just one, but two, I know just one for sure came by to take us up on that offer. Hey, we'll give you, you want the job, we'll give it to you. But you got to come and do something. Now, if somebody's hungry for food and they don't have food for the night, we'll give food to anyone free. If somebody wants money, well, come on over. Let's see what we can do. We try to give them an honest day's work. In verse 12, you shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. See, there's that principle again. I am God. Everything is attached to that covenant. You shall not defraud your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. Now, that would be cruel, wouldn't it? Can you imagine somebody deliberately putting a stumbling block in front of somebody who is blind, knowing they're going to trip over? Now, I've noticed that kids can be pretty cruel to one another. I was driving in our neighborhood the other day, and there's this one child in our neighborhood, neatest little guy, friendliest little guy, but he's a little slower than the other kids. He hasn't matured quite as what we would say normally. And the other kids know it. And as I was turning the corner, I noticed some of the kids hassling him. They were grabbing his bicycle and shoving it around. So I stopped, got out of the car, looked at him and said, what's going on, kids? And of course, they just, you know, fled really quickly. What is it about us? It's interesting, animals will often kill their own who are lame. And man can act like such an animal. Of course, it shouldn't be any wonder to us. We're telling our children we came from animals. You evolved, man, from a monkey. Well, you tell people that long enough, they'll start acting like them. Man, apart from God, lives on the level of an animal. It's his old nature. Man is capable of any atrocity. You know why there are so many laws against things in the Bible? Because of the capability of the evil nature of man to perform those things. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. But in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. This is a true expression of holiness. Simple, practical ways. You shall not go about as a tale-bearer, tale-bearer, or we would translate it gossip among your people, nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. Isn't it interesting that in all these laws, gossip comes up? I wonder how many of us think of how weighty a sin gossip can be. It's been said that there's a, a difference between a the, the difference between a gossip and a concerned person is the same difference as that of a surgeon and a butcher. They cut meat, but for different reasons. The surgeon cuts to heal. The butcher cuts to butcher up the meat and sell it for his own good. A concerned person will seek to heal and remedy the relationship. A gossip, a talebear, seeks to destroy a person's reputation. Of course, Christians have all sorts of excuses why they should gossip. Oh, I'm just concerned, and I thought you'd want to pray about this person, that person, and all the things. That, let me tell you what they did. Just see, so you have a lot to pray for. We call it a prayer request. 
Be very careful how you handle information. Now, how can you tell if you're really concerned and it's valid information to share or if you're gossiping? Well, when you share it, do you raise your voice or lower it? And will you allow a person to use you as a source? Hey, can I quote you on that? Well, no. <laughs> then keep it to yourself. You shall not go about as a talebearer among your people, nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. There's that principle. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now take a good look at that verse. Where do people get off saying, oh, the law is just dealing with such harsh outward realities? And the New Testament deals with the inward. No, the law was meant to govern the inward thoughts as well as the outward action. Jesus spoke that in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it has been said, you shall not murder. I say unto you, if you hate your brother without a cause. Was this some new thing? No. He was setting the purpose of the law straight for those who were listening. You shall not hate your neighbor or your brother in your heart. Now, murder, like everything else, begins inwardly. Hatred. It's an attitude of the heart. The first step of murder is anger. Jesus said, out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts and murders. I remember as a kid, my big problem was anger. I felt like, you know, I wasn't getting a fair shake. I was the youngest in the family, and they would trust the oldest one, and they took all the pictures of the oldest one and not of me, and my dad had time for uh, the oldest kids, but, you know, he, I'm number four. He's got other things to do, and I copped an attitude. I threw my brother through a window. I, in anger, put my foot through the door. I made threats to different ones in my family. I was just obnoxious. I was a murderer because of that hatred. That's where it begins. The seed of murder begins in the heart. And so, forbidding, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. Instead, you're to rebuke him and not bear sin because of him. Now, who hasn't struggled with anger? Now, you might not call it that. You say, well, I'm just temperamental. 90% temper, 10% mental. <laughs> you just let your, you don't even think about it. You just react. To hate a person that God made in his image is to really challenge God. There's a story I found of a rabbi, famous rabbi, who was leaving uh, the synagogue and he met a, a teacher in his community, a very important teacher who was brilliant. He was known for being astute in so many different matters and uh, he was very arrogant and prideful, this teacher. And he saw the rabbi. And remember when Jesus said, you shall not say to your brother, Raka, or you're in danger of judgment? He turned to this rabbi and he said, you Raka, you worthless person, how ugly you are. And the rabbi smiled and said, then go tell my creator how ugly is the creation that he has made. Now you couldn't do that. You'd be hard pressed to tell God, you really blew it, man, you made a mistake. But to reproach the creation of God is to reproach the one who made it. Don't hate your brother. And again, the end of verse 18, I am the Lord. Now, verses 19 through 31 is a reiteration of previous laws. We've read them last week and weeks before. We're not going to go over them all again tonight. Many references are made to much the same thing, mismating of things. Mismating animals, mismating different kinds of seeds in the same field, mismating human beings together in the wrong context, different kinds of materials. All of these speak of the idea of separation. You belong to God, you're to be separate, you're to be different from the nations around you. Verse 32, I like this one. You shall rise before the gray-headed and honor the presence of an old man and fear your God, I am the Lord. I like that. You know, our society puts so much emphasis on the young 
and the aggressive. And we are a society where more people in the next several years, because of the baby boom generation, there's going to be more old people than ever before. There's a lot right now. And we owe it to our parents and to the older generation, not only to care for them, but to listen to them. Listen, they have experiences that we can glean from. And I like this. In the presence of an older person, you get up. Now, I've been the last five, six years a lot in the South, as I've been working with Franklin Graham on his board. And, you know, there's just some, I come from California where, you know, we don't even know what a manor is. It's like, hey, dude, right on, man. You go in the South, a woman enters the room, you rise. I never forget, I was, my wife was astonished when she met Franklin. She walked in the room, he got up and he said, ma'am. I said, ma'am. <laughs> Lenya, ma'am. But he said, listen, in my culture, you always do that when a woman enters the room or enters a table in a room, you stand up. When an older person comes in, same thing, sir, ma'am. I said, you know, Lenny, those are great manners. You know, we, we had to try to instill those in our son. He might be a little bit out of place out west, but it's, a, it's great to practice that. He shall rise. Verse 33 and 34 cap on the issue of holiness, his love to the stranger. If a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not mistreat him, but the stranger who dwells among you shall... Be to you as one born among you. You shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. How do you feel around foreigners? How do you feel around people who don't speak the language you speak or have the same culture that you possess? You get frustrated? They should go back to their own country. Now, God said, remember, you're a foreigner. You came from Egypt. This isn't even your land. You should know what it feels like. Because you've been mistreated, you should know how to treat those who have been mistreated. You know, it's an interesting thing, but people who have been mistreated often react negatively. Instead of learning the lesson from the mistreatment and taking a different course of action, they will often emulate the way they've been treated. And so kids who've been mistreated by parents, instead of saying, you know, changing from that, because that's what they've seen, they often become abusive parents. And I find that even when a person becomes Christians, uh, they can take on sort of a, a reactionary negative bent. They're down on everything, snooping around for bad things that people are saying and doing. It should make one more sensitive. After all, God said, you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Think about it. All of us are foreigners. This is God's earth. You don't own it. You're on it as a temporary person. You're traveling through for a short period of time. And everyone should be treated with love. What an impact that makes on others. You shall do no injustice in judgment, in measurement of length, in weight, or volume. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, that's a dry measure, somewhat larger than a bushel, a just hin, this is a liquid measurement, one and a quarter to one and a half gallons approximately. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe all my statutes and my judgments and perform them. I am the Lord. To sum it up, be honest in business. Make an impact in your world by having good business ethics. Pay your bills on time, work hard for your employer, treat your employees justly and fairly, giving them the proper wage, proper time off. The balances, the weights should all be just. You can make a tremendous impact at your work by being a person who keeps his eye on the Lord rather than his eye on the clock. I don't know how many times I've heard people say, you know, I'm kind of tired of hiring Christians. What do you mean? Well, they think that because I'm a believing boss that I should give them a break and let them read their Bible for three hours every morning and let the other guys work. And every time I tell them to get busy and work, brother. And they take advantage of it. And I've even had unbelievers say that, yeah, they just, they, 
just not much motivation. Then I've also heard people say, you know, I don't think I want to work for a Christian employer the way I've been treated. Now, on one hand, this is going to happen. The world is always looking for anything they can find about Christians they don't like. And as soon as they find it, yep, there it is. It's, a, it's all because he's a Christian. And if you don't walk in absolute perfection, they might place that on you. But what an impact a good hard worker will make. When I went to Israel and lived on a kibbutz, I had this guy who really believed in this principle to the extent that Though we worked from about 5.30 in the morning till about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, then we were off and we were tired, we'd rest. Every Passover time, he decided that we should volunteer for a job nobody wanted to do. It was an assigned job. We didn't have to do it. But he said, hey, let's volunteer. Let's work from about 11 o'clock at night to about 2 in the morning and work taking the chickens and crating them off to get ready for the Passover. It's something they do all over Israel. And we thought, gosh, I don't know about that. You know, we don't get much sleep as it is. This is going to be tough. He said, yeah, but what an impact this is going to make on all of these people who don't know Christ. They don't even know why we're in their country to begin with. But if we really go out of our way to work hard, God will open a door. And you know what? He did. So we started volunteering at this guy's inclination. And pretty soon they came to us and said, now, why are you guys in our country? And why are you guys working so hard? We've never... Seen, we always thought Americans as, you know, soft and they just like TV dinners and sitting around watching television and really not working hard. That's what they said. What makes you different? Why are you here? And a door opened for the spreading of the gospel. Peter said in his book, 1 Peter chapter 2, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of wrongdoing, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. You know, in the second century that happened. Justin Martyr, one of the church fathers, wrote about an incident that was happening in the local congregations. He said, Many who have come in contact with us were overcome and changed from violent, tyrannical characters, either from having watched the consistency of their Christian neighbors or from having observed the wonderful patience of Christian travelers when overcharged or from doing business with Christians. What a great testimony that is. Just weights and balances. Now in chapter 20, prepare to be shocked. Because the chapter deals with capital punishment. For a whole host of things. The emphasis of chapter 20 is not the moral law, but punishment for the disobedience of the moral law through capital punishment. And this shocks people because people say, you see, now Israel's no different. And God is no different from all of those other cultures who were living at that time, Mesopotamia, Syria, Babylon, all of them imposed capital punishment. Oh, yes, but one big difference. Those countries imposed capital punishment on everything, including crimes against somebody's property. God prescribed it against, in crimes against people or public welfare. People or public welfare. Crimes such as murder, child sacrifice, kidnapping, sexual immorality, Witchcraft, magic and astrology, which could turn the nation from him, idolatry, and the false prophet. And Israel never saw capital punishment as murder, but as righteously administered judicial execution, necessary and always carried out. It wasn't murder to them. It was for the welfare of everybody else. You see, in Israel, there were no prisons. Now, there are today, but there weren't then. The only thing they had were these six odd cities, called cities of refuge. If a crime was committed, whether you did it or not, you would hightail it to a city of refuge. There, nobody could harm you until you had a fair trial. If after a fair trial you were found to be guilty of one of these crimes, they'd kill you quickly. If you were innocent, no stigma would be attached and you would be released. God makes no apology for capital punishment. You might squirm a little bit and go, oh, this is going to be tough, you know, to explain. God doesn't seek to explain it. The only reason it's hard for a society like us to deal with it is because today we are more interested in the rights of the criminal than the victim. And whenever you turn your value system and you're more concerned about those rights of the criminal rather than the victim, nothing will seem right. 
The Lord said, spoke to Moses, saying, Again, you shall say to the children of Israel, Whoever of the children of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel, who gives any of his descendants to Molech, he shall be put to death. We covered that last week. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. Then I will set my face against that man and cut him off from his people, because he has given some of his descendants to Molech, to defile my sanctuary, profane my holy name. If the people of the land should in any way hide their eyes from the man, when he gives some of his descendants to Molech, and they do not kill him, then I will set my face against that man, against his family, and I will cut him off from his people, and all who prostitute themselves with him to commit harlotry with Molech. If you were to go to the ruins near Carthage, you could stand in a garden that is a mass grave for thousands of children. Who, whose parents practiced what this prohibits. The bodies of these children are anywhere from in infancy to four years old. The parents came and they wanted something from that god or goddess and they were willing to sacrifice their own children to get it. A better job, more money, physical health, more crops, more land, whatever it is, they were willing to sacrifice their child, the child of their womb, to a god or goddess to obtain something for themselves. As we mentioned last week, Molech was a little tiny image of iron. There's several archaeological diggings that show actual statues of Molech used for this reason. Heated up to white, hot temperatures, arms outstretched, and the babies were placed upon the burning arms of Molech, and they were fried to death in front of their parents. All because they wanted something, they were willing to make that sacrifice. You know, when you think about it, not everyone, but many are willing to give up the children in their womb because of an inconvenience. They want that job. They want that person not to leave them. And some are willing to sacrifice that growing entity that God has allowed to grow in the womb to get what they want. In Maryland, it is illegal and finable to ship pregnant lobsters to the market. Uh, it, it's, it's illegal to do it because they're pregnant, you don't want to upset them. It's, you, you, you'll get a fine for it. Yet they've upheld mandatory funding for abortion. It's a $5,000 crime in the United States to kill an American bald eagle and five years in prison. $5,000 and five years in prison, mandatory fine. In, I think it's Maine, they have outlawed goldfish giving goldfish as prizes in schools for children's events because of animal anti-cruelty laws, but again, upholding abortion. If babies were animals instead of humans, they would fare better in the courts of our land. People who parade around, animal rights, whale rights, save this, save that. And at the same time, so many who think that abortion is simply just your right, that's the value system of our land. Now that does not give us the right to go out and take a gun and start killing off those people. We're guilty of a heinous crime if we do that. But we're living in a country whose value system has been so turned around, it's not that far different from those who would do anything and sacrifice the children of their womb to receive something. Verse 6, the person who turns after mediums and familiar spirits to prostitute himself with them, I will set my face against that person, cut him off from his people. Now, much of what we covered last week is in the next several verses. The emphasis is on judgment. Look at verse 9. Everyone who curses his father or mother shall be put to death. I'm glad my dad never found that scripture. <laughs> he has cursed his father or his mother. His blood shall be upon him. Now, this doesn't mean if you swear at them. The idea here is attempting to harm them with the use of magic by casting a spell or a curse on them, where you would invoke another deity 
thereby worshiping another god and as a more heinous crime using that deity to invoke a curse upon your parents. Calling upon any kind of a supernatural power was forbidden in Israel. Look down at verse 27. A man or woman who is a medium or who has familiar spirit shall surely be put to death. They shall stone them with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. Using such power against your parents was an even more heinous crime. Parents were to be respected. The fifth commandment. Now, our society finds it real easy to break the fifth commandment. I found a statistic that in the United States, eight million serious assaults occur each year by children against their parents. A fulfillment of scripture in the last days, Paul wrote to Timothy, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents. Some of you already know this, but it's something that just stunned me, stunned the nation. When several years ago I did a funeral for a husband and wife who were shot in the head and bludgeoned to death out on the west side, out in Rio Rancho area, by their son, who then took his parents, buried him in the backyard, and partied with his friends for a couple days. Of course, there's a crime on the courts now with the Menendez brothers. Hung jury. What do you, what do you have to do to go to prison? Murder your parents? No. Murder your girlfriend? No. Well, I, I guess if you're a TV preacher and you abscond with people's money, yeah, then you go to jail. But do anything else? No, you just can't get in these days. <laughs> the man who commits adultery, verse 10, with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, and again, it's a re- iteration of what we covered. The adulterer, the adulteress, shall surely be put to death. The man who lies with his father's wife has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. If a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They have committed perversion. Their blood shall be upon them. If a man lies with a male as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. If a man marries a woman and her mother, it is wickedness. They shall be burned with fire, both he and they, that there may be no wickedness among you. If a man mates with a beast, he shall surely be put to death, and you shall kill the beast. If a woman approaches any beast and mates with it, you shall kill the woman and the beast. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. So as you can see, capital punishment was very much a part of that nation. They thought that if you would administer capital punishment swiftly and justly, it would be a deterrent to crime. Now, I know that's a big argument these days. You know, there are those uh, who say it's not a deterrent to crime. It's been proved that it's not a deterrent to crime. Two professors, one named Stephen Lawson, University of North Carolina, wrote, he studied the effect of crime deterrent. He said, every execution of a murderer deters on an average 18 murders that would have occurred without it. Another professor, Professor Van de Haag, said 99.9% of actual murderers prefer life imprisonment to death because what is feared deters the most. Israel saw it that way because God saw it that way at that time. And I don't think capital punishment really has, should be changed in the sense of a law against society. I think that society has the right to impose capital punishment uh, if justice has been administered surely and definitely and the person is found to be guilty of murder and the like. Keep in mind something else. We're coming to a close here. To Israel, it was very important for retribution. Understand what that means? A crime has been committed. We need retribution for this. The land has been defiled. There are victims without retribution. Something must be done to bring it to closure. In Numbers 35, it says, Bloodshed pollutes the land, and atonement cannot be made for the land on which blood has been shed except by the blood of one who sheds it. Now, before you say, okay, yeah, but that's an Old Testament mindset. Never do you read an inkling of that in the New Testament. I beg to differ. Paul the Apostle upheld capital punishment for himself. 
when he stood in Caesarea before Agrippa and he said, Now, if I have committed anything worthy of death, then kill me. Otherwise, let me go. He had been accused of a capital crime by the Jews, blasphemy. If I've done anything, fine. Execute me. That's quite a mouthful. Now, chapters 21 and 22 are chapters that deal with the priesthood and the sanctuary. We'll just simply touch on them next time. Um, very briefly, take about two minutes to get through these chapters. A lot of it's a reiteration. It's specifically to those who serve in the priesthood and those who offer the sacrifices. And uh, there were certain restrictions for both the priest and the high priest that are given. And there is application for the standard of those whom God calls to the ministry, something we'll talk about next time.